If you'd like to go ahead and open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 13, we'll be reading from there in just a moment. Matthew chapter 13, while you're doing that, I'd like to say welcome. Thank you to each one of you who's chosen to be here with us this morning to study God's Word, to worship Him, to, to lift Him up in praise and to lift up one another in encouragement. I had an excellent class this morning about discouragement and, and the, the, what faith in Christ can bring, and I think that uh, as, as I seem to find often here, our, our thoughts and our uh, studies in class can tie into our, our discussions uh, and, and the sermon as well. And I think we'll find that we can find some connection between what we studied in class this morning and what we're going to study now uh, from Matthew chapter 13. We've been going through the parables. We've taken several weeks off of that. But I wanted to get back into the parables, back into this reminder, a teaching of what the kingdom of heaven is, what the kingdom of God is. Jesus is using things that people can recognize, people can understand, to say this is this mystery of the kingdom. Uh, and so that they would be prepared to, to understand and to see what the kingdom was and what it was going to be and what it was going to have as an effect on their lives. Now, one thing that we've already learned is that message of the kingdom is going to be received in different ways. When you think back to the parable of the sower, sometimes that message of the kingdom was going to fall on ears that are wanting to hear that message, hearts that were good, and it was going to produce a fruit in them. Other times, it might fall on hearts that wanted it, but the cares of the world would, would choke it out, and others would not accept it at all. In fact, it showed that Satan was busy, not only in hindering the message from being uh, planted into the hearts of some, but even in, in hindering those who are actually in the kingdom. Those that were going to be in the kingdom were going to be uh, also described as tares, as, as a, we, a weed that grows up and chokes out. And so when we look at the wheat and the tares, we see that. We look at the mustard seed and the leaven. We see that despite that, despite the fact that a seemingly small percentage are going to receive this word, and even of that small percentage, some of them are going to, to possibly fall away, What's going to start small is going to grow. And what's going to grow is going to become something of a rest for, for the weary souls of the world. And so this great uh, development is going to be seen within the kingdom. We find that as we go through these uh, in Matthew 13. And we've really spent all of our time in this one chapter. But Jesus had so much teaching to show us. And then he gets to what we saw in the mustard seed and the leaven. And he begins to couple parables together. And in that coupling, we saw that development. But we're going to find another coupling of parables, and we're going to look at them individually like we did last time. Uh, in verses 44 and 45, we find the parable of the hidden treasure and the parable of the pearl of great price. Like the couple before them, uh, the mustard seed and the leaven, these two have a common theme. If their common theme before was growth and development, the common theme of these next two parables is going to be the preciousness and the value of the kingdom in the eyes of those who find it. And so I want to spend just a little bit of time looking at that. And we're going to start with this idea of the parable of the hidden treasure found in verse 44. If you would just read that one verse with me. It says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it he goes and sells everything, all that he has, and buys that Field. When we get into the explanation of this parable, there's a couple things that I would like for us to recognize. When we see the details in this parable, we need to make sure that we see them exactly how they are written. Sometimes I think we read into this things that are not there. 
If you look ahead just a little bit to verse 45, notice what we see about the, the merchant in verse 45. He says the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls. This is a completely different parable, and this is why I wanted to look at them separately, because these are two different occasions that are being described. The merchant was looking for something valuable. We don't read that in this parable in verse 44. It says the kingdom of heaven is, a, is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found. It doesn't say that the man was seeking treasure, but rather there was a treasure that had been hidden and this man found that treasure. It almost gives the idea that this man stumbled upon this treasure that had been hidden. But once he did, recognizing the great value of that treasure, he secured it at the greatest cost to him, giving every, selling everything that he had so that he could go find it. This man recognized the value. So what does that mean? What does that mean for those people that are going to be in the kingdom? What does that mean for us today? What should that have meant for them then? I want to consider the thoughts of two commentators that I had the opportunity to read in preparing for this. D.A. Carson makes a great comment on this, saying the kingdom of heaven is worth infinitely more than the cost of discipleship. And those who know where the treasure lies joyfully abandon everything else to secure it. The cost of what it means to enter into this kingdom pales in comparison to the value of what the kingdom brings to those who, who live and reside within it. William Hendrickson said the kingdom of heaven, the glad recognition of God's rule over heart and life, including salvation for the present and for the future, for soul and ultimately also for the body, the great privilege of being thereby made a blessing to others, to the glory of God, all this is a treasure so inestimably precious that one who obtains it is willing to surrender for it whatever could interfere with having it. Now with those two thoughts in mind, I want to look back to the Scriptures because we have a wonderful example of someone who stumbles upon the kingdom of heaven. Someone who finds a treasure hidden in a field and sacrifices a great amount to obtain it. We have this exemplified for us by Paul. Turn over to Acts chapter 9 with me. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Here we, leave, we read of this very early account of Paul, why his name was, was still known as Saul of Tarsus. And this is coming on the heels of the stoning of Stephen, uh, which, which Paul, he, he was a, a, a participant in. And maybe not in casting stones, but he held the, co the coats of those who did it, and he was consenting to it. And so after that happens, we read this account in verse 1, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. I want to think for a minute. Was Saul looking for the kingdom? In some regards, yes. He was looking for the kingdom as a Jew. He was looking for the kingdom of God to be established, the throne of David to be, to be reascended, and for that physical rule that the Jews were, were, were so certain was coming to be reestablished in Israel. He was looking for that kingdom. But like the Jews, uh, the, many other Jews that had missed the teachings of Jesus, he didn't recognize what the kingdom was. He didn't see the value of the way that he was persecuting. The people that he, was, that he was dragging to prison, that he was tearing families apart, that he was throwing before 
uh, the the Sanhedrin, um, very likely many to their death. He didn't see the value of that way, the value of the kingdom. And so we might say that as he's on the way to Damascus, he is going to stumble upon a very valuable treasure hidden from him. Because as we read on in verse 3, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he trembled and astonished and said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what, what you must do. And so we know the rest of the story. Saul, he goes into the city, goes to the street, which is called Straight. Ananias meets him there. Ananias teaches him what Jesus would have him to do. And then that he learns about the kingdom. He learns of the value that, that, is, that is of this treasure that he finds before him. And yes, he was not looking for it. He was not marching to Damascus to find the kingdom. But find it, he did. And I want you to consider the value of that treasure to him. In Philippians chapter 3, Philippians chapter 3, in verses 4 through 11, Paul is describing the, the value of this kingdom, and he does it by describing things that don't seem that valuable to us. Listen to how he starts. He says, Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning law of Pharisee, concerning zeal persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Now, separated from Judaism the way that we are today, we might be tempted to read those things and think, congratulations, Paul, let's all give you a round of applause, but... What does that really mean? In the eyes of the Jews, this is, this is value. This is important. This is your standing with God. This is the highest thing which you can have in this life is to be valuable in this sort of way. Zealous, righteous, circumcised as a Hebrew in that covenant with God. This is important stuff. But listen to what he says in verse 7. But what things were gained to me, these things I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. And be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith that I may know Him, and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His suffering being conformed to His death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul says, look at this very valuable thing that I have, that I had. A Hebrew of Hebrews. It's not something that everybody can say that they had. He said, but I had it. That was mine, and I count that as garbage. I count everything as garbage in comparison to the knowledge of who Christ is, in the comparison to the knowledge of what His kingdom is. Since there's nothing in this world that can, that can be worth what this is that I now have. And I stumbled into it. I found it on my way to destroy it. 
I think we have a wonderful example of the man who finds his hidden treasure in a field and sells everything to, to receive it. Now, Paul, he would go on to say in other places that, that not only does he count things as garbage, but it costs him a great deal to be a member of, of this kingdom, to be a part of this kingdom that he found. Not only does he lose the respect of all of these people that would have respected him as a Hebrew of Hebrews, he loses their favor and he gains their hatred. They stone him. They leave him for dead. They chase him from town to town. They harass the people that, that know him and in hopes of trying to catch him. He is shipwrecked. He is without food. He is cold. He is without a home. He gives all of this up and is willing to experience all this because he recognizes the value of what he has found. Philippians 3, verse 4, he says it's something worth giving up all for. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7, he calls the glory of the, or the gospel of the glory of Christ a, a treasure in Colossians 2, verses 1 through 3. There he talks about the treasures of the wisdom and knowledge that are found in Christ Jesus. Clearly, Paul considered Christ and his kingdom a treasure worth giving up everything one had for. But what about this kingdom makes it so valuable? What about this kingdom makes it a treasure? Well, turn over to Colossians chapter 1 for a moment. Because Paul understood some things about this kingdom that we need to come to understand as well. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13, Paul says to the Colossians, He has delivered us. He's speaking about God here. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us in the kingdom of the Son of His love. The first thing we need to see about the treasure that is before us is that the treasure we have is a refuge from darkness. It is a shield, a, a strong home, a, a fortress, a rock. It is that protection that we needed from the sin and the darkness of this world. And he describes it again as a kingdom here in verse 13, the kingdom of the Son of His love. But he says, you know where we were. We were once in the power of darkness. We were once in the kingdom of Satan. When you read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1-3, through 3, he describes the state that we were in, uh, and he describes it being as the prince of the power of air that we will have to fight against. See, Satan has a kingdom. It's his world. And we lived in that kingdom. We moved, we breathed, we were described as one who is in an enmity with God. And what Paul is telling the Colossians is the value of this great kingdom is that God has taken us out of that kingdom belonging to Satan, out of the power of the prince of darkness, and moved us over into a new kingdom, a kingdom filled with power from the prince of of love, the prince of princes, the prince of peace, Jesus, his son. We belong to him in this kingdom. We were under the influence of Satan. We were trapped in various sins, but by, by the kingdom of Christ, we find deliverance. We find that refuge. We're set free from guilt and we're set free from the dominion of sin. Turn over to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, he makes an interesting statement there. Uh, in verse 17, he says, But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered, and having been set free from sin, 
you became slaves of righteousness. He describes them in this, this freedom that they have from sin as slaves of righteousness, but that is not something to view as, as, as negative. He says it's thanks to God that you can say, I am a slave of righteousness. Jesus described it in Matthew chapter 11 saying, it's my yoke. You put a yoke on something, you're, you're restricting it. When you put a yoke on oxen, you're tying them together and one can't go one way without bringing the other with it. Jesus says, I want you to put your yoke, my yoke on you. And so that when you put on my yoke, you are, you're tied to me, you're slave to me, but it is a yoke that is easy to bear, it is light. And it is thanks to God that we can say we have that yoke upon us. There is a great value in being yoked to Christ and being in His kingdom. As, as Paul so wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, as he talked to them about the, the dangers that they were in almost committing the same sins that the Israelites com uh, committed and eating things sacrificed to idols, and that there was nothing to that food that had been sacrificed to idols, but there was something to the idols that there were demons behind that, and that they were very guilty or dangerously close of being guilty of going right back into the, the life that they had come out of. And he says, that's the same mistake that the Israelites made, but you, you're in the kingdom of Christ. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, he says that in that kingdom, wearing that yoke, you will never experience a temptation that there is no escape from. You're in a kingdom that gives you a protection. And that protection guards you from being in a spot that, that is completely hopeless as long as we are in Christ. There is the, the beginning of the value of the kingdom. Not only is this kingdom a refuge from darkness, this kingdom is the source of righteousness and peace and joy. In Romans 14, verse 7. Romans 14, verse 17, excuse me. Um, there, Paul makes this statement about what the kingdom is. It's not the verse I want. That's because I'm in 1 Corinthians. That's, a, that's the exact reason why it's not the verse I want. Romans 14, verse 17. It wasn't even on the right side of the page. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. He has to remind them, again talking about similar things that he was talking about with the Corinthians, that the kingdom of God is not what you put into your body. The kingdom of God is not all these restrictions that they were making over food and drink. The kingdom of God is greater than that. The kingdom of God surpasses that. It's righteousness, peace, and joy. And this is in keeping with the teachings that we find in other places that have been given. Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 through 9, tells us that righteousness came. Remember, we read there that righteousness came through Christ. That was what he was saying as he talked about the, the, the way he viewed things whenever as... The, the things that he had before, the things that the world had to offer, these things were all garbage in comparison to Christ because in Christ he had found righteousness. He says, and be, and be found in him, be found in Christ, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Paul was saying, I understand that there's something that comes through being in this relationship with Christ by being a member of this kingdom, this treasure that I have found. And that is that I can truly say now that I have righteousness. Earlier, my righteousness, which was in the law, I was found blameless in that. But that wasn't true righteousness. I found true righteousness being in Christ. In chapter 4, the, uh, just a couple, maybe a column over for you in your Bibles, he says in verse 6, Be anxious for nothing. 
But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. He says, here's another thing. Not only do I find righteousness in this kingdom, I find peace in this kingdom. Peace from what? Peace from everything. There is no circumstance under the sun that can take the peace away from me that Christ has to offer. Now, I don't have to always listen to it. I don't have to always think about it. I can let the circumstances of this world control me and dictate how I feel. But the fact that I'm in this kingdom tells me I have access to Christ who brings peace. That was the promise that he said that he, would, that, that he went, that he left to bring peace for us. Not the peace of the world, but the, only the peace that comes through knowing him. And in fact, when we look up just a little bit before that, to verse 4, he says, rejoice then. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. In chapter 2, he says in verse 17, Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of our faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. Now, at the time of Paul saying this, he wasn't actively being poured out. He wasn't actively dying but he was facing it, and eventually he is going to experience it. That's going to be the, the end of his life, is, is dying as a martyr for Christ, dying for the things that he preached, dying for the stances that he took in Christ. He died for the treasure that he found. But he says, in Christ, I don't, have, I don't have to experience anything other than joy from that. I can be glad, even if I'm being poured out, even if I'm being killed for my beliefs, I can be glad and you can be glad and rejoice in me. And again, that goes back to chapter 1 like we talked about in class. Verse 19, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. But with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell, for I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to part and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. Paul said, I can experience contentment. That's what we see, righteousness, peace, and joy. He says, I've got everything I need in the kingdom. The value of the kingdom to me is that it provides everything that I could possibly need in this life. But he also recognized that this kingdom was destined for, for greater things than just what they saw in, in that first century. It was destined for more than being persuade, or pursued by the Jews and, and persecuted by the Romans. It was destined for more than being the laughingstock of the Greeks who, who just thought it ridiculous that this religion it celebrates the life of a man crucified by the Romans. Paul said, no, I recognize that this kingdom is destined for eternal glory. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in verses 21 through 26, Paul writes to the Corinthians, For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive, but each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterwards those who are Christ's at His coming. Then comes the end, when He delivers the kingdom, of God, uh, the kingdom to God the Father, when He puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. 
For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that will be destroyed is death, for he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all and in all. Paul was saying, this kingdom that I have found, the treasure that I have found, is worth giving up everything for because one day God is going to be within it and without it. Everywhere. All and in all. As Revelation, as John described in the Revelation, that, that He would be the light and He would be the city and He would be the temple and we would reside when God and He would be our God and we will be His people. He says there is a glory that is already present in this church. As Jesus said, when two or three gather together in my midst, there I am also. Uh, as two or three gather together in my name, I am in their midst. Excuse me. That glory is already present in this day, but, but Paul is saying that glory is, is destined for something greater. It's destined for eternal, uh, everlasting glory with the Father. When Christ said His second coming presents the church, His bride, spotless, blameless, bathed in the blood of His sacrifice, back to the Father. And is that not exactly what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 13? Prior to saying this parable, verse 41, in describing the parable of the tear, He says, The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness, and cast them into furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth, Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. And he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Paul is recognizing what Jesus has already taught. This kingdom, as great as it is, is going on to a greater glory. And it is a kingdom that we can trust in. It is a sure and unshakable kingdom. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 12. In Hebrews chapter 12, the Hebrew writer, he makes these statements in verses 25 through 29 about the kingdom. He says, See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we, receive, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. If you think back to Daniel chapter 2, God has been promising this unshakable kingdom for quite a while. In Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream that he just refused to tell anybody until they can tell him what it means. And Daniel alone gets the vision from God and talks to him about the statue, the image that he sees with, the, with, with all the different uh, layers of, of precious metals and, and gold and silver and clay and iron. And, and he describes this to him. And as he goes through, he talks about all these different kingdoms. But it's the kingdom at the end. The rock hewn from the mountain without without hands. The rock that crushes all of these other kingdoms, but yet the rock that doesn't go away. 
Instead, the rock grows, as we saw in the previous parables. The rock turns into a mountain. The rock turns into a place that is, that, that is provided for those that are in need of rest. Kind of goes back to that idea of refuge. What we see in this is that the rock described in Daniel chapter 2 is turning into a kingdom that is never going to be defeated. It's turning into a kingdom that is never going to face real uncertainty. Now there are plenty of times in that first century when the followers of that kingdom were very uncertain. Uncertain of what was going to happen in their physical lives. Uncertain of whether or not this kingdom was going to continue to, 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 to stand. But throughout history, time and time again, God's reign... God's rule in the lives of men has shown that it can't be defeated. It can't be shaken. It's an everlasting kingdom, as Peter described it in 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 11, he says, Brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, for so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. When we consider the present blessings that this treasure found brings us, when we consider the future blessings that this treasure found brings us, perhaps we can begin to appreciate more the value of this kingdom even when it is not being actively looked for, and when people stumble across it, the value oftentimes is immediately recognized. And there are those who are willing to pay whatever price necessary to enter in. Now we looked at Paul, and we looked at the price that he paid to enter into the kingdom. But there's another view that we need to consider before we wrap this up. Because Paul paid a lot. He paid with his life. Stephen paid with his life. But no one paid as much for this kingdom as Christ did. When we read Matthew chapter 13, we oftentimes put ourselves in the view of the man. And I think that's rightfully so. We should. But we need to remember that Christ paid everything to leave heaven. He paid not only with, with humiliation in this life and with a, a death on a cross that was not deserving, but he paid by leaving the glory of God the Father. If you remember his prayer in the garden when he asked to be restored to that glory, that was a great cost, a cost that none of us have been ever been asked to, to, to make, but a cost that he freely chose so that he could create this kingdom, so this kingdom could be found by those who walk this earth, weary travelers, who might stumble upon the precious value of the kingdom of Christ. What about us? Are we willing to pay the full price to obtain the treasure of the kingdom? It costs us more than we may consider sometimes. For some of us, we may have been raised understanding what the kingdom was, being taught from a very young age, what the kingdom was. For some of us, we came later in life, having someone else show us 
stumbling upon it for ourselves through a study of God's Word. But do all of us see the value of the kingdom that we are in? Do we see the value of the kingdom enough that we're willing to turn away from the sins of this world? Sins that oftentimes creep back into our lives. Are we willing to sacrifice those things? Are we willing to submit to Christ? He is the the king of this kingdom. And yet for so many of us entering in, we recognize that we want his peace, we want his joy, but we're not willing to submit to his righteousness, to his teachings, to his laws, to his commands, to walk in the manner which he walked. And it's because for so many of us, we're not willing to put the kingdom truly first in our lives. You see, the kingdom has to come before all of our desires. It has to come before our desire for, for money. Man cannot serve two masters. It has to come before our desire for love and for affection. It has to come before our desire for, for whatever it is in this life that, that stands against the teachings of Christ. So when we read the parable of the hidden treasure, we may already have found the treasure. We may already be in the kingdom. But do we recognize the great cost that it took to create this kingdom? Do we recognize the great cost that we are asked to count if we are going to be members of it? And what about for you this morning that maybe are not members of that kingdom? In just a moment, we're going to sing a song, a song of invitation, and it's not the invitation of the Lake Street Church of Christ. It's not the invitation of Kyle Blevins. It's not the invitation of your parents or your friends It's the invitation of Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's the invitation of the Savior that paid it all, and He invites you to join in Him, to join in this investment, if you will, from the use of this parable to pay a great price but to receive a great reward? Are you willing to sacrifice your freedom? I should use that in quotation marks. The freedom that the world says you have to do what you want to do and to be what you want to be, to follow after Christ and experience what true freedom is. Free from sin. Free from from fear free from depression, all the things that we've studied in in the the Bible study classes in the morning. We have freedom from these things. We find the righteousness and the peace and the joy of Christ. Are you willing to to sacrifice the worldly cares that, that you have learned to value for a true treasure in heaven? Let's put our hearts there. And if we can help you do that this after or this morning, won't you please let it be known? Come forward as we stand and as we sing.